How do you land safely in eternity? In Galatians, Ephesians, and Colossians, Paul rules out all other ways to God, all other religious connections, and all other saviors. Let's look at the core message of these books with our study leader, Dave Wurtzen, and you decide. I want to talk to you this morning about something that's really on my heart. There's a lot of intolerance in our culture. There's a lot of bigotry in our culture. And I think as you go out this week, you're going to hear a lot of debate about bigotry and intolerance. You hear a lot about the arrogance that flows from that. And I want to start out this morning by telling you about one of the most bigoted, intolerant people I've ever met. My flight instructor, Carol, was one of the most bigoted, intolerant people I've ever met. You see, one of the things that I really, really enjoy doing in flying is I like to make really steep turns. How many of you would guess I like doing that? I like making really steep turns, and you know what? It's really even more exciting if you make those turns at low altitudes. And when I expressed that to my flight instructor, she was adamant. She said, Wurtzen, under no circumstances are you allowed to make steep turns at low altitudes. In fact, as as she began to instruct me about landing, which is the most important thing that you do in flying, any idiot can get the plane off the runway. I could teach any one of you to do that in probably a couple minutes, and you'd probably relatively... It's a very dangerous time. Once you're 50 feet in the air, if things go wrong, you're dead. But... uh, Uh, It's not really that hard. But the hardest thing and the most important thing is the idea of landing is to get the plane safely on the ground all in one piece and yourself inside the airplane, Lord willing, all in one piece. How many of you agree? So as Carol taught me about this, she said, now, Wurtzen, as you're coming in, what's absolutely important is when you make your turn to the base leg, I'm 1,000 feet up in the air, by that time about 500 feet in the air, When I turned to base, she said, you may need to make a very coordinated, careful turn, and it cannot be steep, number one. And then when you make the final turn to base, on your final, absolutely, no, totally intolerant, that has to be a gentle, coordinated turn. And I said, Carol, that's the most arrogant intolerant, bigoted thing. Because, and what really makes it bad is that one of my strongest desires in flying is to be able to do that, especially at low altitudes. It reminds me of a big question that's come up. How many of you have read the paper and Governor Perry went to my, actually my daughter-in-law's father's church in San Diego, and San Antonio, and how many have heard about Governor Perry he went to John Hagee's church, and after the service, they asked him, because John spoke on Jesus is the only way. How many of you heard about that? You might not have heard it. Let me tell you about it. They asked Governor Perry as he walked out. He said, John just said Jesus is the only way. And they asked him, you know, Governor Perry, do you actually believe Jesus is the only way? And he had the audacity and the intolerance of saying, yes, I, I really do believe that. Now, that's what I want to talk about today, and I I want to make it really, you know, I want to share what I would have said. I would have said, you know, it really doesn't make any difference 
what I believe about whether Jesus is the only way or whether or not there's a hell. And I want you to think really hard about this. Because you live in a society that thinks if you believe it and you believe it strongly enough, it's true. And I want you to stop and think about that. Because to be honest with you, I could care less what Governor Perry says about whether there's a heaven or not. How does he know? And I really, you know, if he says Jesus is the only way, you know, I don't think he really knows. He hasn't been out there, and he's never died, so he doesn't really know. And so the issue, like what the, the, the you know, the, the, the commentator that asked him that question wanted the whole city of Texas to know, look at how intolerant this is, how bigoted that is. And I want you to know there's a lot of people that are thinking like that. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to share, I think it's really important to ask yourself, where are you going to go to find out the answer, which way is it? How many of you are afraid that one day you might die? Where are you going to go? I want every one of you to listen to me really carefully. Because that's the landing that I need to be safe about. Everybody agree? And what I want you to know about making that safe landing is it doesn't make any difference what I think. I've never been out there, and I've never died. And my intellectual arguments about what I believe and don't believe aren't going to make any difference about what really happens, and it could happen any time, when you got to make that landing and turn base and turn final. And the big issue of all of life is, am I going to land safely in eternity? We're in his story. We've been learning from the beginning of the Bible. Genesis 3.15, we learned there's a great conflict going on between God's children and the serpent's children. God promised to send a great serpent slayer. We learn in the Gospels that Jesus came as that great serpent slayer. As we move into the book of Galatians, Ephesians, and Colossians. Ephesians and Colossians. We skipped over Philippians. Do that next week. Because Ephesians and Colossians are twins. They're written at about the same time to very similar kind of cities and with a little different nuance, and I'll try to give you that today. But we want to group these three letters together. And so you'll all understand it. The Apostle Paul is going to say in Galatians that there's only one good news. So what is in Galatians? Tell me only one. Okay. Ephesians is going to say there's only one church. Now, he doesn't say there's only one denomination. He doesn't say there's only one church building. So we need to clarify by what he means by the church, which is the assembly of all those who are going to go to heaven and all of those since the time of Christ that are going to land safely in eternity. And we're going to talk about what he means by this idea of one church. Finally, in the book of Colossians, he's going to make this audacious claim that there's only one divine human savior. Paul has the audacity of saying that there's only one deliverer that's ever come to planet Earth that can actually get you safely through this life and then into the next. So let's look at it. Let's begin with the idea that there's only one good news. Turn your Bibles to to, uh, Galatians. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Let's look at the Apostle Paul's claim in Galatians 1, 6 through 9. By the way, as you're turning there, let me tell you, uh, Paul isn't a Gentile, contrary to what a million people would think. Lots of people would think that Paul was a Gentile, and Jews don't have to listen to anything that I have to say today because they have their own faith. And what I want to share with you is that historically and objectively, 
The Apostle Paul was one of the leading Jews in the first century. So you can't sit there and hold that Jews shouldn't listen into this discussion. I want you to really nail that down. I want you to think clearly about this. The Apostle Paul is a Jew. And actually in Galatians, he's, he talks about his past life in Judaism, how he was persecuting those that believe in Jesus as the Messiah, and how he met Jesus. In fact, one of his really strong claims is that the reason you need to believe in his good news is because he actually had the Son of God, after he rose again from the dead, appear to him and talk to him about how you could land safely in eternity. Let's look what he says in Galatians chapter 1. Look at it in verse 6. Look, let's read that. Galatians 1, 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you. That would be Jesus. You, by the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different good news. Whenever you read gospel, it literally means just good news. That you're returning to a different good news. And I want you to see his next statement. Which is really no good news at all. You hear what the Apostle Paul just said? He said all the other claims to be good news. All the other different ways that you're told you can get safely into eternity. They are not good news. They are bad news. So that's Paul's claim. He's saying there's only one good news. He goes on to say this. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion, and they're trying to pervert or twist the gospel of Christ. But even if an angel, if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim a good news, other than the one that we proclaim to you, let him be eternally condemned. And I changed it to proclaim, because when I mention the word preaching to you, you think of John Hagee. And that's good. John's one of the greatest preachers you could ever hear. You think of Dr. Criswell when he was alive. We think of a form, and like Scott reminded us earlier, is the word preaching isn't just something you do on Sunday morning. It's what you need to do this week. It literally just means to tell others, to share with to declare to others, to give a witness to others, to open your mouth and get this news out. I could use the Greek word that's used for preaching of what, uh, you know, what they do on the Channel 8 News. They proclaim the news. And so you're proclaiming good news. That's all it means. And the Apostle Paul goes on to this. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is proclaiming to you a good news other than what you accept, accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Apostle Paul's really narrow-minded, isn't he? He's very intolerant. And I want you to be really clear, the Apostle Paul is not saying that you don't have the right to decide. He's not saying that you don't have the right to have your own personal beliefs, because you do. In fact, one thing I really want to get across to you today is that the living Lord Jesus, that's the ultimately the center of this good news, he'll carry on a personal conversation. I pray that he's doing that right now this morning. He'll carry on a personal conversation with every single one of you, and he'll let you totally reject his good news. So it's very important to understand that. Nobody can force you to believe this good news. You can't be born into it. You can't join a club to get it because you're, the Lord is so ordained that every one of you is made in God's image and you can think, feel, and decide. And the reality is that the Lord will talk to every single one of you about this good news. So you have that freedom. I'm not trying to force anything on you. But what you can't decide and what your beliefs will not determine is where you end up. 
In other words, you can believe a lot of different things, but that doesn't mean that they're all right. And I want you to think hard about that because your society often misunderstands that these days. Our society, a bunch of your friends think, if I believe it, it's true. And anyone that takes away my freedom to believe that and tell me that it isn't true, they're really intolerant. They're bigoted. And that's wrong for them to do that. And I want every one of you to think hard about that. Because the Apostle Paul is giving total freedom. In fact, I think it's really the freedom that's in the world. It's the freedom to hear the truth. It's the freedom to think about the truth. It's the freedom to ask yourself whether you'll receive the truth. It's the freedom in an incredible way to decide what you're going to do. If the Apostle Paul wanted to be, this is a first century letter. This is a Jewish man that's saying that he has now found the only good news. And what he's saying is that all the other good newses are not good news. They're bad news. Now, what's the heart of this message? Turn over to chapter 2, verse 15. What is the heart of this good news? I want you to look carefully at these verses because this is the heartbeat of the book of Ephesians. Look what he says in 2.15. And I want you to look at it because it doesn't make any difference what I teach you. I want you this week to read this stuff for yourself. You listen to Paul. You listen to his conversation. Look what he says in 2.15. He says, We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. There he's giving you an idea the way that he as a Jewish person looked at the Gentiles in the past. When Paul was a Jew, he believed that everyone else that wasn't Jewish that didn't keep the laws of Moses, especially the food laws, they were sinners. And this is a very strong word. They're the bad guys. It says, we who are Jews by birth are not Gentile sinners that are doing all those things in Romans 1, all those bad things. He said, know that a man, this is what the Jews, I want you to see, this is what Paul is claiming. This is what the Jews really discovered in the first century. Not Gentile sinners, pagans, but this is what Jews discovered in the first century. We know, as Jewish men that were born Jews, that a man is not declared righteous, not justified. They don't stand before the judge of the universe and get a declared right You are freely forgiven. You are accepted into my family. You are going to be saved eternally. That's all involved when it means to be justified. It means that you get the right verdict before the eternal judge of the universe. And Paul is saying this. How many of you want to get the right verdict when you stand before God? The ultimate God of the universe. How many of you want to get that person is declared right? They're forgiven. How many of you want that? How are you going to get that? I want every one of you to ask yourself this morning, in your heart right now, how do you think that you get that verdict? Paul, before he knew Jesus, before he met Jesus, would answer that question like this. If from childhood you obey the laws of Moses, if you are circumcised on the eighth day, if you keep the Shabbat, the Sabbath, if you keep the kosher laws, and if you obey the Ten Commandments, If you keep all of those laws and you work diligently to do it, then maybe someday when you stand before the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he will look at you and say, you did a better job than that person over here, and this is where the cutoff of here's heaven, here's eternal separation from God, which is hell, and you kind of pass the curve, you're at the top, you go to heaven. 
That's what almost all of your friends believe. Some kind of a variation of what I just told you. And that's what all religion teaches you. Something like that. The Apostle Paul says that's not good news. Because I discovered by a revelation from Jesus that a person is declared righteous before God by this. Not by observing the law, but by faith in Yeshua, which means Jesus. He's the Savior. And Mashiach, because that's the way you would hear it. If I was a Jewish person in the Old Testament, Paul would say, salvation is not in Torah. It's not in the law of Moses. It's total dependence upon Yeshua, this Jesus that died on the cross of Calvary and rose again, and the Mashiach, the anointed one, that became the promised one from the Old Testament. And it's by just simply depending upon him, resting in him. I'm using different words you use for the word belief and trust. It means with conviction, I, I hear what Jesus says. I listen to what he's done for me. He reaches out his hand and says, I want you to depend upon me to get you to heaven. And I reach out and I grab his hand. Mary would never do it, but some of you would do it. I've even had some of you say, David, I want to go flying with you. This is what trust is. We go to the airport, and you haven't trusted me. I show you my license, you haven't trusted me. We get in the airplane, I turn it on, you're getting close, but you haven't trusted me. You can tell me till you're blue in the face. I think you had a good teacher, you passed the exam with flying colors. Ken and Sarah Pritchett even witnessed that they actually saw it happen. You got the license. I believe you can do it. That's a bunch of nothing. Until you say, okay, we're at the end of the runway. Let's go. And then you trust me. Mary's not ready to do that. And that doesn't make any difference in the eternal scheme of things. But Jesus says to you, I want you to really hear what Jesus is saying. And I want you to listen really clearly to me because I want you to go out this week and I want you to be able to explain to people what you really believe and what belief is. Jesus says to me, says to you, I want you to let me inside. I want you to trust me. And Jesus takes off. And you ride with him, and I promise you, I started riding with him when I was five years of age. And I'm still riding with him. And if my heart stops ticking while I'm teaching, which would be a neat way to go, then he's going to land me safely in the arms of the Father. Brothers, that is incredible good news. That is incredible good news. It's the greatest thing. Don't let anyone hold that that's a terrible thing for you to believe. And you might sit there and go, David, you're so intolerant. You're so mean. I am not intolerant. I am not mean. It's the truth. It's the truth. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. He says, we have learned that a person is not declared righteous because they have followed Scientology, because they listened to Tom Cruise, or because they went to India and they went into the mountains with a guru, or because they kept certain food laws, 
or because they followed a certain rabbi. Paul has made this incredible claim. It's only those that trust, depend upon Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah. And then he says this. He said, so we too put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith and not by observing the law. Paul couldn't be more clear, because by the observance of the law, no one will be declared righteous before God. It's impossible. This is the heartbeat of the book of Galatians. Paul's concern is in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. He's concerned that these that began with that marvelous good news and put their faith completely in Christ, he's so concerned that they're going to turn away from this dependence upon Christ and they're going to depend upon a lot of other things. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 and following. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has beguiled you? Who has put a, a kind of a, a spell upon you is the picture there. Before your very eyes, and Paul is saying, this is the way I preached when I was with you at, at Galatians. He says, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly betrayed as crucified. So when you went and heard the Apostle Paul preach, he was a dramatic preacher that helped you to go to Calvary. He helped you see Jesus die. You could see the, you know, the, the, the nails in his hands, and he says, that's the substitute. That's the Savior that died for you. Paul preached like that. He said, I clearly portrayed Christ. It uses a word that says that he was, I put the cross on a great big billboard so that when you drove through life, you saw this marvelous billboard that said the Savior died for you. He gave his life for you. Your sins have been paid for. He says, how could a group of people that saw Jesus clearly portrayed as crucified, how, I would like to learn just one thing. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? By observing the law or by believing what you heard. And this is what the Apostle Paul is saying to the Galatians. It's really important for you. He's saying, do you receive God's presence to live inside of you because you earned it? Or because someone taught you how to do certain things? Or because you worked hard to reach a certain level? of performance and morality. Is that what made God's Holy Spirit take up residence in your life? And Paul says, no. The Galatians received the Holy Spirit the moment they believed in Jesus. And that leads to the end of the book of Galatians where the Apostle Paul says, now that Holy Spirit, and this is my prayer for every one of you, now that Jesus has taken up residence in your life, that's going to move you. That's going to move you towards Every single day, more evidence of Christ and his character in your life. Now, this idea of Christ inside of you leads to the heartbeat of the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians, Paul recaptures much of what he says in Galatians. He's not quite as argumentative about it because he's not combating so much the false teaching, but trying to lay a positive foundation for a church that really loves the Lord Jesus. But the big distinctive thing that I want to underline in our overview of the book of Ephesians is what does Paul mean when he talks about one church? And this is what he means. Totally parallel to Galatians. When you receive Jesus... The Holy Spirit came to live in your life. And what that means is that you became the sanctuary. You became the holy place where God dwells. And when you gather together with other people that have trusted Christ, then it means you become a, a concentration, you might say, of the sanctuary. In the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory of God would come upon the holy place in the temple. The children of Israel would gaze at that glory and they would rejoice, God is living among us. 
when the children of Israel committed the golden calf sin, their great burden was, will God ever walk with us again? Will he ever lead us again? And the answer to Moses' prayer, asking for forgiveness, is God says, yes, I will dwell among you. And the Shekinah glory comes upon him with thousands of people watching it. And they're flooding their faith and saying, I can't believe it. God's presence is with us again. You know what the New Testament's saying? It's saying in your earthen jar of your body, the book of Ephesians is saying the moment you believe, God's not just his Shekinah glory came upon you, not just the radiance of who he is, but the very third person of the Trinity, God's divine Holy Spirit took up residence in your life. And wherever you go in the world, whenever you meet another dependent, trusting follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit's in their life. And that becomes the gathering. It's not located in Rome necessarily. It's definitely not in Salt Lake City. You don't need those external cities. You don't need great popes or great leaders. Every one of you are part, every Roman Catholic that knows Jesus, like I've described it today, they're in the church with me. Every Jewish person that becomes a Jew for Jesus, that depends upon Jesus for eternal life, they are no longer just Jewish by birth. They have now become God's chosen people with me by their faith in Jesus Christ. Do you get it? They can speak Spanish. They can speak Russian. They can be purple. And they're mine. They're my brother, my sister. Say, Dave, where are you getting all that? Turn to the heartbeat of the book of Ephesians. Well, I want to get one more thing in that closet. I want you to turn to Ephesians. This is a very, very strategic passage. Ephesians 2, verses 21 and 22. We'll just look at two verses. Ephesians 2, 21 and 22. Look what he says. In him, this is, he's talking about Jesus. In him, the whole building... What building is he talking about? In Jesus, the whole building. What building is he talking about? You need to be sure. He's talking about the building right over here. So please give more money. We're not quite there yet. No, this is the building. You know, we just don't have quite good enough teaching center. We need a better sanctuary. We need a better holy place for your kids to come. Is that what he's saying? What's the building? You. That's the most incredible news. Look what he says. In him, the whole building is joined together. And you're rising to become what? A holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God will live by his Holy Spirit. The one universal church. And I want you to leave this auditorium this morning just committed to this. The one universal church is you joined with millions of people down through the centuries from when Paul wrote these letters, hundreds of years, and, and now even today as we worship, millions of pe people uh, understand what I've talked about, and they believe in Jesus, and they become this gigantic holy temple. And I want you to believe that. I want you to be willing to give your life for it. Now, what makes all that possible? What makes the good news really true? Only one good news. It would be totally bigoted for me to say, I agree with the governor. And I agree with the governor on what he does for border patrol. And I believe what he tells me about religion. Because I'm a Republican. That doesn't make a lick of sense. Border patrol, being a Republican, doesn't have anything to do 
with whether or not Jesus is the only way. I want you to know the difference. Did you hear what I just said? When it comes to who you vote for, you need to vote for what they do in the political arena. When it comes to what you're going to trust with eternal life, listen to someone who saw Jesus alive. And in Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul tells us why Jesus is the only way. And he, and he says it in a beautiful song. It's really a worship song. Look what he says in Colossians 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible. So I believe in Jesus because he was before there was in the beginning. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, some of our young people and some of you as adults aren't sure that there are, that Jesus is God. You're not sure there really is a God. Well, one of the things you need to ask yourself is, do you think Satan is real? And I want to tell you really point blank, I know for sure Satan's real because he's loud. I know Satan's alive this week. When I see someone with their, with their wrists slit and the scars and they're telling me that's a voice inside that says, just kill yourself. And I'm not talking about somebody that's out of their weenies, but I'm talking about someone that's been devoted you know, to sin, taking drugs, been really immoral, and now they're reaching the bottom and thinking, I'm just going to end it all. I know Satan's real. What the Bible tells me, he lied and he murders. It's very, very real. Satan's usually a lot more subtle than that, but I know he's real. Jesus is a lot quieter. But brothers and sisters, I know that he's real, and, and he's the one that created all things. And it says here, and it says he is before all things. No one else in all the world can stand before him. And in him all things hold together. So you're alive today, sitting in your chair, because this Jesus that I'm talking to you is holding you together. You're not held together just by natural law of physics or by a biology. But as I talk to you, the Savior that I want you to trust in is holding you together. Even his enemies, even those that curse him, they're alive. And that'll really help you to give you great confidence when Jesus is in your heart and you see somebody that won't listen to you or rejecting you. It gives me great confidence to know, well, dear Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace. The guy just cursed you like crazy and you're still holding him together. Boy, you remind me of your mercy. Thank Jesus. It helps me not to be intimidated. And it goes on. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God, that's the first from the Trinity of the Father, was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus. And through him, his purpose in causing all of his fullness to dwell in this man called Jesus was that through Jesus, he might reconcile himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. What can wash away my sin? Tell me. What can make me whole again? Oh, precious is the flaw. That's not a dirty song. It's not a, a song about a God that beats up his son because he's a malvalent, violent father, as feminists will sometimes tell you. It's an incredible story of love that all we like sheep have gone astray, and God had laid upon him. Now listen as we close. Because I don't want Carol, my finance director, to hear that I said she was very bigoted and arrogant. I want to tell you why Carol told me 
that when I come in on my downwind leg, a thousand feet above the runway, pull the power and drop to about 500 feet, and then I make my base turn. You know what happens if I exceed the bank angle? And you're with me? We're dead. If I make it through that turn and I turn for final and I'm too slow and I'm too steep, even if Dale Nott is with me that has hours and hours and hours, we're dead. We will drop out of the sky like a rock. Ken, my brother's right here. Before I go flying, whenever Ken sees me, almost every time he says, Dave, watch your airspeed. Watch your airspeed. And all my buddy pilots, whenever they'll say, watch your airspeed, even old pilots. You know the guy that crashed, the, the pitcher in New York? He's a great athlete. You know why he crashed? He exceeded that bank angle. Too low, too slow, too steep. And you saw what happened. The plane just careened in a building and two men died. Brothers and sisters, I am not being mean to you today. If I have to stand up and do your funeral, and you're saying, oh, I tried to live a good life. I was a good cowboy. But I didn't need Jesus. That's the worst funeral that I can ever do. Or if I do a funeral and you say, well, I, I didn't believe all that Jesus stuff but I gave a lot of money to the United Way. And I'm just as good as anybody else. I'll agree with you. Externally, you might be a lot better than a lot of people I minister to. But if you haven't climbed on board with Jesus, you're going to crash. Carol wasn't bigoted. She wasn't intolerant. Most of all, she wasn't arrogant at all. If she told me once, she told me a thousand times. I want my grandmother to be able to fly safely with you. And this is the truth. And I want you to land safely every time. And brothers and sisters, your pastor teacher, I want you to leave her today knowing that it's not intolerant to believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Galatians, one good news. Ephesians. One Christ-filled church. Colossians, one divine human savior. If you've never stepped over the line, this morning, trust in Jesus. Open your heart and then go to a son, go to a wife, go to a husband, go to a friend and say, I want you to know, today I nailed it down. I grabbed a hold of Jesus' hand. Most of you have already made that decision, honestly. What I'm concerned about, this week is a great opportunity for you to share that it really isn't intolerant and it's really not bigoted to believe that the only man that's actually been there, done that, landed in heaven and come back to tell us about it, it's not intolerant to believe that he can make us safe forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I want to pray that this conversation with you and with Paul, your great representative, would powerfully clarify things in our heart. Lord, I pray for any of my dear friends that haven't really nailed down 
for sure who they're going to trust in and what they're going to trust in for eternal life. I pray that they'll do so. Right now, help them to be able to say, Dear Lord Jesus, I learned who you are. You're the creator. You're the God-man. You died on the cross for my sins. Come into my life and save me now. Lord, I pray very, very much that my brothers and sisters, the young ones and the older ones, I pray that you would give us opportunities to help people to hear the truth about Jesus this week. I pray that you would give us a great passion to love others, to get involved in their lives, and to help them to hear this incredible good news. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.